can uh, hear me okay. There's always a few that will be coming in. Make sure the sign-up, uh, the sign-in gets used. Make sure you're signed in so that you can get extra credit for being here today. Put a star on your, on your poster. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll dive into our study tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time we can be together. We unpack your truth and your word, uh, especially as we were looking at the veracity, the, the truthfulness of your word tonight. Lord, we just need your help as we do that. And Lord, we do pray for those who are still on their way, that uh, they be uh, kept safe, make it through all the traffic. And uh, Lord, we do ask that uh, you would bless our time together. And uh, Lord, help us to hear from you tonight about uh, these things that uh, are so important to our our faith and what we believe. <coughs> so be our guide, we ask. And we, we just pray for your blessing. Pray this in your son's wonderful and awesome name. Amen. Well, we're thankful that you're here tonight. And uh, we have uh, some wonderful things uh, to discuss. We're going to be talking about authority. And a, we're going to touch on inerrancy just a little bit. Got a film clip to show you a little bit later, um, which uh, is always fun. I should have brought some popcorn for the movie clips. So. Um, again, we're utilizing systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. Has anybody gone out on, on a limb and actually purchased one of these yet? No? There's still time, you know. They're still printing them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great work. Uh, I encourage you to grab one. You should have one in your household to look up stuff from time to time. So we're going to, first of all, talk about authority, and then, like I said, we're going to do kind of a glancing blow off of inerrancy. Uh, the chapter on inerrancy by Wayne, uh, chapter four, is it's excellent. He does a really uh, super good job with that. So, but this uh, begins our, uh, our discussion on basically four aspects of Scripture that he outlines, that Wayne outlines, and the first one is authority, the authority of Scripture. And in doing so, he, uh, he uh, gives us a definition, and hopefully my clicker's working here. By way of a definition of the authority of Scripture, we mean that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Okay? Does that seem pretty straightforward for a definition in terms of what we're laying out here. We believe God's word to such a degree that all the words in Scripture, everything in here, uh, we believe are God's words. Hello, Danielson, come on in. We believe that all the words in Scripture are, in fact, God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any of Scripture, it is to disbelieve or disobey God. So that's a pretty powerful statement in terms of what we're saying about this book. Now, I mean, think about it for a second. There's a lot that we read in here that we really don't do very well doing. And probably the reason we don't do very well doing is because we probably don't really believe it. Here's what I've learned over the years in pastoral ministry is people who really believe will really do. They will. If you really believe something to be the case, you'll really do it. If you don't really believe it, you're not going to do it. 
<laughs> you won't. It's too hard. And you really don't care because you don't really believe. But those who really do believe what God has to say, they will find a way. They'll bend over backwards to find a way to do it. Okay? Uh, there's more to that dynamic, and um, uh, we'll explore that uh, in, the, in the weeks to come in terms of um, not just knowing God's Word, but falling in love with God's Word. Uh, that helps us in our doing. Because it's at that point we trust the one who's giving us the truth um, to such a degree that we're compelled to do what's right. Okay? So that's our definition that we're going to unpack. And so basically each of the points that we're going to look at tonight under authority is going to take some aspect of this statement and kind of explore it and explode it. So first of all here, all the words in Scripture are God's words. That's our first statement. This is going to take us a while to unpack this idea. All the wor- we believe that all the words in Scripture are God's words. This is what the Bible claims for itself. The Bible claims for itself that all the words are God's words. Where does it say that? Well, things like out of Exodus 7.17, Thus saith the Lord. You know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the, it's known as the tetragrammaton, the, the yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew. Yah-vah, uh, in terms of how it's pointed. These are the points I referred to you the other day, uh, or last week or so, uh, in terms of the pointing of the text by the Masoretes that help us sort out how to say that. It's where we get uh, Y-H-W-H, but the, the, the W is is uh, Germanized a little bit. It makes it a V, just like in Volkswagen, right? So, Volkswagen. So here we have uh, Yahweh, if you will. Again, we just have consonants, but with uh, this short uh, Shiva here and a Kamatz, uh, we get uh, Yah, very short, Yahva, is how you'd say that. Um, uh <laughs> that's a whole other discussion. We'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave this alone for right now. We'll probably get to it eventually. Thus saith the Lord. In other words, Yahweh, which is uh, the covenant name for God out of Exodus, where Moses asked, you know, God, well, who should I say is sending me? And, and God tells Moses, tell them that I am is sending you. And I am that I am. And this is the verbal of the I am. It actually, with the yod out front here, it's a future verbal, which makes it uh, basically uh, not just I am, but I will be. Um, the one who is God is the one sending you. The, the one who will be God is the one sending you. Uh, and so, thus saith the Lord. Uh, other translations, thus says the Lord. Again, capital L-O-R-D. In our English Bibles, whenever you see capitalization here, that's referring to the tetragrammaton, these four letters of Hebrew that you know precisely we're talking about the covenant name of God. This is what the Lord says in the NIV. Okay? So this is what the Bible claims of itself. This is what God says. This is what the Lord says. All right, that's a pretty strong statement. And we have to go, okay, I believe it's really the Lord saying it, or I don't. If I do, then I've gotta ha- I'm going to have to deal with it, right? Further, we could say this, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, how much of it? All of it, 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, so from Genesis all the way to Revelation, everything in the book has been given to us by God, breathing his word out. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof. Sometimes I, I need to be taught something. Sometimes I have a, a, uh, I've come to a wrong conclusion. I need to come to a different conclusion by being reproved. I need to, sometimes I'm outright wrong, and I need to be corrected. Uh, sometimes I'm unrighteous. I need to be trained in righteousness. So that's what God's Word does as we read it, as we encounter it. By the way, if you're not reading it, if you're not encountering it, then it can't do these things in your world, can it? You're, going, you're wondering, man, I just, I, I'm just not growing very much. Oh, really? How close are you to the book? The closer you stay here, the more this will happen in your world. Why? Because of what it is. What it is is based on what it does. What it does is based on what it is. All Scripture, here in this text, all Scripture, pasa grafe, uh, literally translated, there's no other way to say that. It's all Scripture. Further, God breathed. Uh, Theopneustas. Thea is God. Neustas is breath, God breath, or God spirit. It's God spirited to us. Breathed out. Theopneustes, or neustas in this case. All right? So this is exactly what it says, and that's how it's interpreted. This is what the Bible claims for itself. And my clicker is being a little finicky. I'm going to move it to the other side. Let's see if it makes it happier. Let's try it. There we go. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All that we have here from Genesis to Revelation has been given to us by men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit of God. Now that's huge for us to understand. This is what the Bible says of itself. It's been God-breathed. Now, it's been written down by men who've been moved by God to say it by the power of the Holy Spirit, pouring it onto the page for us. Matthew 1.22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoke by the prophets. Another example. This is a fulfillment of Scripture by way of Matthew here. Matthew 4, 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live. Who answered here? Jesus did. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what the Bible continues to say about itself. It's God's word. All the words in Scripture are God's words. Matthew 7, 9 through 13, um, we see the phrase, commandment of God, Moses said, word of God. These phrases keep coming up and commend to us this idea that what we are reading or what Jesus is saying came from God. It's a commandment from God. 
Moses was told what to say. It's God's words. 2 Peter 3.15 And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in, in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Interesting phrase. Some people say, well, I believe the Old Testament's God's word, the gospel. Yeah, but what about, I don't know, Paul. I don't know. There's some things I disagree with what Paul says. But what did Peter just do with what Paul wrote? What did he just say about what Paul wrote? Hello? How? How did he do it? But, but how does he put it on par somehow? Given from whom? God. And he compares it to what? He compares Paul's writings to what? The other scriptures. As if it's on par with the other scriptures. Why? Because it is. Just like with the other bananas. You know, if I look at the other bananas, then I must be holding a banana, right? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So we counted all patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote. He wrote stuff down to you according to the wisdom given him. Now, I love this. He kind of says, Peter, you know, he's a fisherman. Or Matt, how you do that? He's a fisherman. He's not a fisherman. He's a fisherman, right? So as a fisherman, he, as he reads Paul, he's like, you know, some of it's kind of hard to get. It's kind of tough. I don't get it all sometimes. But there are some things in them that are hard to stand, which the ignorant and unstable twist in their own destruction as they do the other scripture. The other, the, what other scriptures? The other scriptures along with what Paul wrote. So he just put all of Paul's writings on par with the rest of scripture. Powerful statement. All the words in scripture, including what Paul wrote are God's word. This is what the Bible claims of itself. And here, Peter claims that of Paul's writings. Secondly here, we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's words as we read the Bible. In other words, as we read God's word, I don't know about you, but the more I read it, the more I come to the conclusion that, well, wait a minute, no mere man could have said this stuff. This is incredible. This is, this is beyond what could come from mere men in terms of the depth, in terms of the beauty. Uh, I think I mentioned to you uh, a few weeks ago, I asked the question, how many for you when you, you know, first encountered Christ and you came to Christ, was there a time prior to coming to Christ you read God's Word and you didn't really get it, didn't really understand it, but then after coming to Christ, boom, you understood it in a way you never did before. Well, this is what this is about. We are even more convinced that the Bible's claims to be God's words as we read it, as we come to understand it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
I, you guys, I've seen this countless times in my office where I'm trying to, I'm pleading, I'm begging with somebody to listen to what God has to say and follow it and do it. And they, they look at it, they hear me say these things, and they walk away and they go their own way. One person will hear the same thing and they'll walk away. Another person will hear it and go, man, I need to be all about that. For some, what they're hearing, as a natural person, they don't understand it. But a person who's in Christ goes, oh, I, I get that. I do need to do that. That's a, that, I mean, if you can read God's Word and you kind of get it, and you go, man, you, in the, in the midst of the lights going on for you, you go, thank you, Lord. Why? Because there's a lot of people where the lights haven't come on yet. They're still apart from the power of the Holy Spirit to understand these things or to accept them even. And it's hard. It, it, will my being more persuasive convince them? No. My putting forth a better argument make the difference? No, unless the Spirit of God is moving, nothing changes. So by the way, from my standpoint, that actually kind of takes a lot of pressure off me. Because it's not up to me to convince you of anything. It's up to me to point out what's true. And either you identify that by way of what God has said, or you don't. And that becomes God's, that's God's issue, not Bradley's. <laughs> Years ago when I took my first pastorate, this uh, gentleman who's one of our elders I won't mention his name because he, uh, we're, we're filming. And um, anyway, uh, we're finishing up the interview. And, you know, I, I've got the job. I'm going to be a pa my first pastorate. And uh, this older guy, uh, a farmer, he takes his finger and he, you know, he's an older guy, so it's kind of shaking a little bit. He goes, now, if the people don't come, then the people won't give. And if they don't give, then you won't get paid. And I just kind of looked at him and said, you know, that's just really not my problem. <laughs> that's not my issue. That's God's problem uh, as to whether or not anybody hears what God has to say and whether they are led to give or not. I can't make him give on stuff I'm saying. That's God's business, Right? He didn't know what to do with me exactly. There's more to that story too. So we'll leave it at that. A natural person can't get it. Those in Christ can. Further, Jesus himself says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. Are you hearing his voice? To such a degree that you can't wait to follow? They say they don't really need a whole lot of fences, uh, you know, over the Middle East to straighten out, keep all the herds straight. Why? Because the herdsman calls for his sheep and his sheep will come to him. They won't go off with the other, some other guy. The sheep know where to go. That's what Jesus' point is. And if you're one of his, you'll know where to follow. You'll know where you need to go. 
So Jesus is just stating a fact here about how it really is for those who are in Christ, those who are one of his sheep. So we are convinced that the Bible claims to be God's words as we read the Bible, as we encounter, if you will, the Master's voice and are called to him. Thirdly here, there, there's other evidence we could point to that might encourage our hearts here, but sadly, they're not convincing. And we know it's not convincing. Even though we might point at it and go, well, that's, that's nice, that's encouraging. What evidence are we talking about? Yes, the, the Bible is historically accurate. I could point that out to you. Go, look, look how accurate the Bible is historically. But is that the thing that makes the difference for somebody in terms of finally, oh, now I get it. No, that's the work of the Spirit, right? These are, this is important, but it's not the difference. Having an intellectual argument about God's word is not what makes the difference in the life of a person, in the heart of a person. Yeah, it's historically accurate, sure is. Praise God for that. It's internally consistent. There aren't contradictions. Uh, the more I read the text, the, the more honest I see the text is with itself and with us, and the more consistencies I see. Not this Easter, but the Easter before here, I went through all the different statements on Resurrection Sunday as to the different dispositions of the gospel writers on what was happening at sunrise. And if you read all the accounts, you might conclude that, well, my goodness, nobody's agreeing as to what's going on. There are contradictions here. Except for if you study and tear it apart a little further, you recognize that, wait a minute. Maybe this is how it is in the morning. One says at dawn before it was light. Another one says after the sun came up. Another one says in the morning. Well, which is it? And you have to answer the question, with, well, yeah, that's what happens. There's a, when you get up early, there's a time when the sun's not quite up, and then there's a time when it is. Uh, that's what we call dawn, <laughs> right? And so you could have used any one of those phrases to describe that phenomena. And so here's what I like about the honesty and integrity of the gospel writers is that they didn't go back and, oh, let's make sure that it all does exactly the same. No, we've got honest perspective in terms of how the writer, led by God himself, writes it in such a way to describe what happened. You know what, it seems to me, the resurrection, you know, when the ladies are going to the tomb, it was sometime in the morning, <laughs> about dawn, about, you know, when the sun comes up, that's when that was. Can we be okay with that? That, is that, do, I don't look at that as an outright contradiction. Matter of fact, to me, it's more confirming in the fact that it's not precisely exactly the same in each account, because that would be more realistic with whoever you talk to. There's an accident on the corner here, and you had four witnesses on each corner. They're all going to say something a little different about what they saw, right? But what do they all agree on? There was an accident. Yeah. Isn't that right, officer? Three, four witnesses that give the same identical testimony. It's just unbelievable. They give a different testimony of the same thing. It's more believable. 
Yeah. Because otherwise it looks like they're all in cahoots. Right? Yeah, good. Thank you for adding that idea. Contains prophecies that have been fulfilled hundreds of years later. This is probably one of the things that spoke to me as a young believer. I, I've always been so amazed. And we looked at a few of these uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, the prophecies we see in the Old Testament about Jesus blow my mind. Hundreds of years before he ever showed up. It's, it's crazy awesome. And the odds of anybody fitting the bill for the Old Testament prophecy are astronomical. And yet it all comes to, comes to culmination in Christ. That's great, but is that going to be what convinces somebody? Yes, it's influenced. The Bible's influenced the lives of millions throughout history. Sure it has. It leads people to find salvation. Yes, it does. But is that the evidence that convinces us that all of Scripture is God's words? The Bible has majestic beauty and profound depth. Yes, it does. All these things are true. Hundreds of times it claims to be God's word to us, doesn't it? But is that the evidence by which we make our claim and bank our statements? I love what the Westminster Confession does here. Westminster Assembly met in 1646. Met at Westminster Abbey in England and established the Westminster Confession of Faith for the Church of England long ago. Listen to their statement here in chapter 1, paragraph 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other comparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That's what convinces us more than all else. And by the way, unless that has happened, then anybody you're arguing over these things with isn't going to hear it. You know what I'm talking about? You can show them all these evidences. And they'll be, you know, like looking at stuff in your fridge. You know, it's, it's not making any difference. Well, I see you got some cheese there and here's some ketchup. Maybe there's some milk. Okay, great. It's not going to be life-changing. It's only the power, power of the Holy Spirit that moves in us by His sheer grace that helps us to rightly apprehend who we're hearing from by way of His Word. So then what do we do then? What do we, how, how then do we share the gospel with people then? Should we get caught up in these kinds of arguments about it? 
No, it's not profitable. Better to show them who Jesus is. Years ago, I had a guy, my friend and I were out uh, to his house. We got called up. He's having horrible marital problems. Ended up going to his house at the request of his wife, looking for answers. And, uh, you know, we walk in there, you know, he he had known me because he'd been at the church, but he wasn't a Christian. And uh, he goes, well, you know, I'm an atheist. Yeah, I know. Your wife told us so. Well, I don't believe there is a God. Now, I've got a choice to make. I can start trying to prove to him that God exists. Is that going to be a profitable experience? No. He's already positioned himself that God isn't. And kind of actually wants to inflame me and kind of make me, bother me a little bit by going, well, I know that God is. Well, I know that God is not. You can't prove that he is. Well, you can't prove that he's not. Well, how far have we gotten so far? Nowhere. And so that's a red herring. It's a... So... Got cool things going on. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, uh, so we just shared the gospel with him. By the end of it, he put his faith and trust in Christ, the atheist. And the funniest thing he said on my <laughs> on the way out the door, he says, "Well, it's about time I gave my life to Christ. He's he's been kicking my rear for you know years." I'm like, wait a minute, this guy, I thought you were an atheist. <laughs> no, he, he knew who had been dealing with him all this time. He was behind, you know, hiding behind this rhetoric so maybe it would go away. So what changed? The heart was changed by God's grace, by the presentation of the gospel in terms of, hey, you know Jesus died for you. Everything that you've done has been paid for. Do you want a new life in Him? Big difference. Now we're not arguing. If you want to go, well, I don't think Jesus ever lived. Okay, well, we can have that discussion. We can talk about evidences about the life of Christ, that every calendar on the planet is dated from the fact that He existed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's that. But again, winning an intellectual argument isn't the goal. It's demonstrating the love of Christ. That's what matters. Fourthly, the words of Scripture are self-attesting. In other words, as we look into what we read, the Bible says of itself, it is, in fact, God's Word. Thus, the words of Scripture are self-attesting. They cannot be proved to be God's words by appeal to any higher authority. I mean, think about it. Can we appeal to some higher authority other than the Bible to say that, well, no, such and such says that the Bible is true. Can the Pope help us here? (laughs) No, even though the Catholic Church would like to say the Pope could help us here. Can Pastor Brad make the difference? Well, Pastor Brad thinks it's true. 
Am I somehow a higher authority than the Scripture itself? No. So the, uh, the highest authority that we can appeal to is God's Word itself. And ultimately, God Himself, right? In light of the fact that that's what it says of itself. It's self-attesting that it is God's Word. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute. That's a circular, circular argument. You're cheating. God's Word is God's Word because it says it's God's Word. <laughs> well, who says? Well, God's Word does. Says what? That it's God's Word. And the people will say, well, well, you're ridiculous. You don't make any sense because you're holding on to a circular argument. They claim we believe that Scripture is God's Word because it claims to be that. Simultaneously, we believe that the Bible's claims, we believe the Bible's claims because it is God's Word. So which is it? And we go, yeah, both are true. And therefore they claim, circular. You're not reasoning very well, would be the claim. And uh, that would be a poor assessment. Why would that be a poor assessment? This really isn't an issue when we recognize that we are appealing to God as our ultimate authority. Any other ultimate authority becomes highly suspect, right? So that really shouldn't be an issue if we're going to say it's God's word based on the fact that it's coming from God himself to us. He is the ultimate authority. There's no other authority we can appeal to. On top of this, not only that, but there are other circular arguments that people hold on to and have no problem with. And so why aren't we talking about those issues? Like, my reason is my ultimate authority because it seems reasonable to, to me to make it so. <laughs> really? Okay. So now your reason is the ultimate authority. Or logical consistency is my ultimate authority because it seems logical to make it so. Isn't that circular as well? And that's what the scientists would like to say. Well, I know there can be no ultimate authority because I do not know of any such ultimate authority. <laughs> Oops, just stepped in that one. You'd, you'd have to have access of all knowledge to be able to make that claim, right? And uh, I'm pretty sure I don't have all the knowledge. Is anybody in the room? I only know one who's got all the knowledge. Oh, yeah, that's God. So what do we do with this? Well, it seems that we need to have a little discussion in truth. And some of the other classes uh, I've led out here uh, at Bethel, uh, some of you might have seen a few of these slides, but hey, it's fun to go back there and revisit it. So I throw out the statement, all statements are false. Let's just have fun with this. All statements are false. Somebody help me with this statement. What do, what do I mean if I throw out this phrase, all statements are false? Why, Tom? All right. This is what's known as a self-contradicting statement or a contradictory statement. So what does it mean then when I say this? What do I mean when I say this? Josh, help me. 
So, but all statements are false. What could this possibly mean? Does this mean anything? It can't possibly mean anything. Why? It's an absurdity. You can say it. It's America. It just doesn't happen to make any sense at all. There is no absolute truth. Maybe you... Yeah. What's wrong with this statement besides Tom? Maybe you've heard people say this. Maybe you've said it yourself. Is this a true statement? Somebody help me. Why? So what's wrong with the statement then? So therefore, this is self-contradictory again. Again, what happens to us when we hear something like this is we want to start arguing the issue. Don't. Think first before you start arguing the issue. Make sure the question even makes sense. This makes no sense. I mean, like I said, you can say it. It's America. It doesn't mean it has any truth. This, too, is an absurdity. It makes no sense. It's a nonsensical statement. It's like saying all words are meaningless. Well, daggone it, I just used words to say that. <laughs> right? I had a, a student in one of my classes a long time ago <laughs> said to me, well, words don't have any meaning. And I was like, really? <laughs> I think you just used words to say that. Just saying. Oh, yeah. Oops. Stepped in it. So, if I can't say these statements, then, you know, what do we do? Well, both these statements violate the law of non-contradiction. You cannot say there is no absolute truth with any real meaning. You just can't say it with any meaning. I mean, you can say it. Like I said, it's America. Say what you want. But it doesn't mean anything. You're talking, you're, you're ridiculous. And all you do is just ask a person, you know, after they say it to you, have you ever really thought about what you just said? Now, on the contrary, you can say this. There is absolute truth. And nobody can argue with you with that. There is absolute truth. And by the way, we know there's some things that are absolutely true. By the way, next week, don't miss next week, because I'm going sh- to demonstrate to you that you can actually know things. It is possible to actually know something in reality. I'm going to demonstrate it. People are going to give a bunch of opinions, but it's possible to actually know it. And we can learn that from our friend Plato, so that'll be fun. So don't miss that next Wednesday. So I can say there is absolute truth. So really the better question here is not whether absolute truth exists or not. The better question is, 
if there is absolute truth, well, what is it? That's the better question. You should be asking that. There are things that we know are absolutely true. Two and two is four. That's true. When you turn in your paper with two and two is four, I'm going to give you full credit for that as a math teacher. You put five or billion six, I'm going to mark it wrong. You put negative pi, you're wrong. Two and two is four. Right? Now, if you say two and two is one plus three, I'm going to go, yes, that's true. Right? Or if you say two and two is five minus one, I'm going to agree with you. The value must be four in every case. All right. So, R.C. Sproul put it this way, truth is that which accurately describes reality. We've alluded to this a couple times in the last two weeks. Now three weeks this week. Truth is that which accurately describes reality. If it's not true, it's probably not real. And if it's not real, it can't be true. Skippy the unicorn. It's not real, therefore it's probably not true. Skippy is a unicorn, really. Now in your story, you might call Skippy the unicorn that, but does that make it real? No. Does it make Skippy real? I mean, maybe for you. No. Secondly, we're going to talk about this idea, again, next week even more so. Truth can be known. Uh, it can be verified. And it can be tested. We'll tear that apart a little bit more next time. But we're talking about a book that continues to assert itself as true, and we'll finish our discussion today with that idea when we get moved towards inerrancy a little bit. Okay? So what do we do with all this? Well, in terms of deductive reasoning and the law of non-contradiction, uh, here's what we're saying. Two statements which are mutually exclusive so that if one is true, the other is necessarily false. That's what a contradiction is. Contradiction is two statements that are mutually exclusive, such that if one is true, the other has to be false. A cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same sense. Mathematically, you'd say A cannot be equal to not A. Why? A must be equal to what? A. That's an identity. <laughs> a must be equal to A. But A is precisely not equal to not A. So if I say to you, you know, the clicker, this clicker is not a clicker. Somebody help me with that. This clicker is not a clicker. It, yeah, it's contradictory. But wait a minute. What, what if I say this? This clicker is not a clicker. And people hear that and they go, oh, that's deep. You guys, that's not deep. It's stupid. It's nonsensical. But there are people who talk this way, and they talk with passion, and, you know, oh, the sound of one hand clapping. And we're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Right, it's nonsensical. Um, I'm uh, preparing uh, some coursework uh, for my doctorate on Buddhism, 
And uh, I, I, I'm reading a text on Buddhism right now, and every page I've underlined, line after line of contradictory statements that can't possibly make any sense whatsoever. And they speak of it as if this is some, in other words, the, the more absurd it is, the deeper it is. The more meaning there is, in the, the more absurd it is. Which, if you think for half a moment, you go, well, that's crazy. Right. It is crazy. It's absurd. So truth matters, you guys. And we, we hold to this crazy idea that there is such a thing as truth. And by the way, a matter of fact, another book I was reading on anthropology this, uh, last week, we, we also need to assert this, that not only is there such a thing as truth, we would also argue that indeed all things are ultimately relative to God. Okay, I had to finish the sentence there. They're, they're all relative to God. We don't hold to an outright relativism where how you see it is just as powerful or meaningful as how you, somebody else sees it. No, if God is the creator of all that there is, then all things ultimately are relative to him. And there, there is an absolute, an authority, which is exactly what we're talking about here. All of God's word ultimately would be relative to him. Not to Brad, not to some church council. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm preaching, I just want to say, don't be mad at me with what it says. I didn't write it. I didn't say it. He said it. Be with him. Your argument's not with me. Your argument's with him. Why? Because it's all relative to him. A statement and its negation cannot be true simultaneously as we just demonstrated all right? That's what a contradiction is. Other words we use from time to time are words like paradox. Paradox is something which may appear contradictory. Again, it might look like a contradiction, but it is not a contradiction, uh, in fact. A paradox is not a contradiction, although unfortunately the words are sometimes used synonymously. Paradox, para. Idea of two. Parable. You've heard of a parable. Um, a parable is literally parabolos. Balos is to throw. So parabolos, parable, has to do with throwing something right alongside something else. That's a parable. It, you know, Jesus taught a parable. He's telling you a story, but there's something right alongside the story that has more meaning. Paradox is again, we got a pair of something here that seem to be in opposition, but we're going to hold them in tension. It's not fully resolved. Sometimes uh, referred to as an antinomy. The existence of two seemingly incompatible statements, each of which taken on its own, is reasonable. So, an antinomy uh, Jesus is God and man. That's an antinomy. Anti, against, over against. Namas, the law. It seems to go against the law of reason to say that Jesus is divine and he's human. 
But based on the evidence, we hold that intention, those two truths, the evidence of Scripture from God Himself to us, that He is divine and He is a human being. Some would say as much God as if He had never been man and as, as much man as if He had never been God. Oh. So He's not just mostly divine, He's completely divine. He's not just mostly a guy, mostly a man, He's completely a man. And by the way, if you start messing with that, you start pushing that in some capacity, you might end up in a heresy. We'll get to that when we get to Christology. Okay, but this is kind of the outline of where we're going in terms of establishing what's true. Okay. Um, so those are some words we'll throw around from time to time to make sure we're clear on what we're talking about. All right, so back to our study. Sixthly here, in terms of all the words in Scripture are God's words, this does not imply dictation from God as the sole means of communication. I mean, there is some dictation. Did you know there's some dictation in Scripture? Revelation 2.1, the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Told what to write. Write this down. Isaiah 38.4, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. It was given to him to write it down. So he did. But not all that we have is clear dictation. How else did it come to us? Historical research. What do you mean historical research? Who wrote something by way of historical research? Well, Luke did. Check it out. Open up Luke. Take a look. What does it say? possible that God could use historical research to put down his word? Luke says in the opening of his gospel, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Seems like he's done some study to put together, you know, what happened with Jesus. And here's, here's what I got. Here's the account I've come with. Okay? What else? Sometimes Scripture comes to men moved by the Spirit of God through dreams. Who can think of somebody who dreamt something? Who? Joseph? Well, he, he dreamt a whole bunch of crazy stuff. Anybody else? Is Joseph the only dreamer? Yeah, it seems like in the middle of the night he sees something pretty crazy. Could put it in the cast of visions. Peter has a vision, doesn't he? What's the vision about? You might recall. Yeah. Yeah. And what's what's the main idea of what he is visioning?
Arise, Peter, what? Kill and eat. <laughs> Live it up. Have a banquet. So dietary restrictions have changed from the standpoint of, as you mentioned, receiving the Gentiles into the church. What else? Hearing the Lord's voice. Book of Revelation. And I heard a voice. Daniel. Some apocalyptic literature. Moses, talking to a burning bush, right? Here's the voice of the Lord. Standing in the council of the Lord in another case, or Jesus' very life and teaching from John 14, 26. Jesus says of himself, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. These are all the different ways that Scripture comes to us. And so it's not just, sometimes we have this idea that a, you know, a man who's writing this down goes into a trance and starts writing down. I say, no, as I suggested last time we gathered, that we see the personality of the men and the purposes of the men as they're moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God to us. Okay? Now we come to the statement in our definition that we're going to tear into. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Right? How do you feel about that statement? Wait a minute, let me ask that differently. What do you think about that statement? With all due respect, I really don't care how you feel about it. <laughs> what do you think about it? Yikes. Yeah, good. It's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, the slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, Jesus is saying, look, do, do you not understand that everything that they, that they wrote was about me? Hello? John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Look, and, and holding this idea, therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. You, you might go through difficulty. You might be given a hard time for holding on to this reality. Because you know in your heart that to disbelieve or disobey it is to disbelieve or disobey God. And there are people out there who aren't going to understand that. And they're going to give you a hard time. They're, they might persecute you. Page 82 in, uh, in Wayne's account here. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good word here. I want to share it with you. <coughs> On page 82, last paragraph before the next statement, it says... Uh, Wayne writes, Throughout the history of the church, the greatest preachers have been those who have recognized that they have no authority in themselves and have seen their task as being to explain the words of Scripture and apply them clearly to the lives of their hearers. You guys, that's all I want to do on a Sunday. I just want to explain it. I want to try to apply it. It's not real complicated. Their preaching has drawn its power not from the proclamation of their own Christian experiences or the experiences of others, nor from their own opinions, creative ideas, or 
rhetorical skills, but from God's powerful words. Essentially, they stood in the pulpit, pointed to the biblical text, and said, in effect to the congregation, this is what this verse means. Do you see the, that meaning here as well? Then you must believe it and obey it with all your heart. For God himself, your creator and your Lord, is saying this to you today. Only the written words of Scripture can give this kind of authority to preaching. I have no authority other than God's word. I got nothing for you. This is all I got. All I got is Jesus, guys. By the way, if anybody else gets up and says they got something else for you other than Jesus, run for your life. Right? Run away. And go find some place where they preach God's word. Lives are on the line based on what's true. And by the way, nothing could probably be more poignant than what took place several hundred years ago at the Diet of Worms. The Diet of Worms, you know, spelled worms, but it's actually a city in Germany where Martin Luther previously had nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door with his concerns about the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. And he was called on the carpet facing excommunication because in the Roman Catholic Church's view, he was a heretic proclaiming a different gospel and deserved to, be die, deserved to die unless he would revoke his writings and his teaching. And he was called on the carpet. And it's amazing how he responds. So let's take, take a listen here. We'll take a break from this for a second. And it's movie time. Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here? I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. First of those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truths. He is not here to make speeches, only to answer. The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the popes, past and present. No! Through the laws of the pope and the doctrines of men, 
The consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I recant these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness. He has condemned himself. In the third group, I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess that I had written too harshly. I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no? Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not. Recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. So what was his argument? What was his argument? Unless you can show me the scripture or by plain reason, not going there where you guys are. I'm, I am convicted in fear of sin here. Am I not on?
Kings in disguise. Was still playing? I thought it was came to that. A few days earlier, the Holy Roman oh, Emperor handed him an outlaw, and now he could be sure. No, nope, didn't do it either. How could he be playing there? Wait, is that better? Still down there? Shoot. Uh, that was a pretty moving scene. And you, you guys, if that doesn't happen, we're not here. That moment in history, that actual event in history that took place, again, they didn't have you know movie cameras, we get that. That depiction of that event, that, if that doesn't happen, uh, the Protestant movement, the protestation of the Catholic Church does not take place. And the tyranny continues. Shortly after this, Martin Luther uh, in exile uh, in the, the Wittenberg Castle translates for the first time the Bible into German and gets the Bible to the people. Prior to that, communion and scripture were only for the priests. The priests didn't have access to scripture. And so the people only knew what the priests were telling them. They had no access to truth. And they had no access to communion with God through the bread and the cup. This is huge. So, the Evangelical Free Church of America, as time goes on, Lutheranism kind of takes over. <coughs> Quite a bit of Europe, Reformed theology moves in with the French and the, um, the Swiss and the Scots go with Calvin in the Reformation. But much of Northern Europe goes with Luther. Most of Scandinavia goes with Luther. And the Lutheran church is put forward. But even even over time, the gospel can get lost, even in a new movement. Where for you to be Lutheran is to be born Lutheran. It's not whether or not you believe or that you've put your faith and trust in Christ. And so as... Scandinavians, Norwegians, Swedes, and Danes started moving to the United States, getting away from the oppression of the Lutheran church, they established the free church. You guys, 75 years ago, it would not be uncommon to find a Norwegian or Swedish free church and you would hear the sermon that morning in Norwegian or in Swedish or Danish. Did you know in 1899, this church, Bethel Community Church, was founded as the Swedish Evangelical Free Church? Oh. (laughs) We've got a Norwegian heritage that goes way back 
over against Lutheranism. No different than what Luther was putting forward over against Catholicism over the issue of the gospel. And the claim with the those who are part of the free church, the, you know what their claim to fame was? Where is it written? Where is it written? What does God say about it? Yeah. Having a high view of Scripture, isn't it? You have a high view of Scripture, you have a high view of God. But yes. A low view of Scripture, a low view of God. Absolutely. In the 50s, the Swedes and Norwegians and Danes got together and established what's known today as the Evangelical Free Church of America, the EFCA, of which our church is yet a part of, and that's our denomination. You'll notice I'm not Swedish, Norwegian, or Danish. Why? Because the issue is the gospel, not the way, not the heritage. The Reformed Church didn't get over that. The Reformed Church, which came out of the Dutch, out of, from Holland, there was two waves of migration. A lot of them ended up in western Michigan, out of which the RCA was born, the Reformed Church of America. But then a second wave came and found how liberal they had become, and so they started a new church called the Christian Reformed Church, <laughs> the CRC. And yet... To this day, they still hold to a pretty hardcore Dutch heritage. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. No offense to any Dutch out there. My brother, bless his heart, he's a, a pastor now in a, in a Presbyterian church in Michigan, was at one point an RCA pastor, and he was just miserable. Why? Because he's not Dutch. So it's interesting how, by way of Scandinavia, there were, there were some movements that were not ethically, ethnically inclined and others were. But the free church, ethnicity was never the issue. The issue was the gospel. And that's why even in the Chicagoland area, we've got several, I mean, we've got a, a whole bunch of Spanish free churches. There are African-American free churches. At the, I mean, it's really, it's really cool. It's really awesome. It's great fun. All right. So, where is it written? Why? Because this is God's word. It matters. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey—that's what Martin was saying. You know, I, I cannot disobey what it says, guys. I know I'm talking. I know I, I'm arguing with the Pope on this. But the Pope's mistaken. From that moment, everything turned upside down. We also hold to the truthfulness of Scripture. And now we move towards a little discussion on inerrancy as we wrap up our time. God cannot lie or speak falsely, can he? No, he being God, that's not possible. Titus 1-2, which God, who never lies, ever so then, when you listen to these promises, these truths, how accurate are they? Completely, absolutely, totally. Hebrews 6.18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. There it is again. We could throw up a whole bunch of passages on this, I think. 2 Samuel 7.28, and now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. 
Therefore, all, <coughs> all the words in Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. Here would be a nice statement on inerrancy. Inerrant. That means there are no errors. Psalm 12.6, the words of the Lord are pure words. You know, for something to be pure, it means it has to be unalloyed. There cannot be any impurities in it. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And God's words probably, we could say, way more pure than that from a human standpoint. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Praise God for that. I refer to this last time we gathered, Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. By the way, that's a long time. <laughs> forever. The sum of your word is truth. When you add it all up, what you get is truth. God's words are the ultimate standard of truth we should say. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So how are we sanctified? What does sanctified mean? That is the process by which we become holy. If you will, the process by which we become more like Christ. So how do we become more like Christ? There's really only one way for that to take place. How? Through God's word. In the truth of God's word. Aletheia, truth. I've got a, a cousin who named her daughter Aletheia. Named her truth. Now, might some new fact ever contradict the Bible? Is there some, you know, idea we might come up with that, you know, well, I guess the Bible was wrong on that. Here's what Grudem says to this. This will never happen. It is, in fact, impossible. That's his conclusion. He puts it this way. No true fact will ever contradict the words of God who, know all, who knows all facts and who never lies. It's a pretty powerful paragraph. So then you watch, you know, the History Channel or whatever, the mythological channel, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and you start listening to some of this stuff, and there's people make all kinds of accusations against God's word about it, not, you know, being full of errors and blah, 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 blah. And you just want to go, if people say those things to you, here's what you do. It's very simple. Just say, well, I know you're pointing that out. Could you show me one? Show me one. Oh, I, I don't know where they are. Well, then how do you know it's true what you're saying? Well, I saw it on that show. Really? You're going to base your whole life off a show that and you don't know whether what they're saying is even true? You know, I know you're concerned about me, but I'm really concerned about you now. So written scripture is our final authority, we're going to say. And this is huge in terms of God's word. It is important to realize that the final form in which Scripture remains authoritative is its written form. So when someone comes up to you and says, well, God told me, blah, 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 run for your life, unless they're quoting Scripture. 
you know, and quoting scripture in context. You know, we're not talking about, you know, Judas went and hung himself. Oh, wow. What you do, do quickly. Oh. <laughs> there are people who, that's how they see the Bible. That's how they look at it. Wow, God, I, God told me I should go hang myself now. Because I, you know, I, I used it like a divining tool. You know? We're not told to read God's word that way. So how has it come to us in written form? Well, first of all, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the writings of Moses and the prophets, right? God breathes Scripture, as we've already discussed. New Testament writings. I mean, that's really, that's, that's it. That's what we have. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We must continually remember that we have in the Bible God's very words, and we must not try to improve on them in some way. Why? This can't be done. Rather, we should seek to understand them and then trust them and obey them with our whole heart. One of my favorite hymns of all time. Trust and obey, because there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Nice little ditty. Turns out it's true. <laughs> Ours is but to trust and to obey all that he has said. As uh, we get to the end of this section here, Again, as a reminder, um, our friend uh, Wayne Grudem here, at the end of each chapter, he, uh, he has a hymn that he uses to, uh, to mark off this moment of, you know, maybe after studying theology, we should maybe worship a moment. <coughs> and he uses a, a hymn written by uh, R. Kelso Carter in 1886. And perhaps you've heard it. For most of you, I'm sure you've heard it. <coughs> so just kind of think about this and worship in it for a moment. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God, with the refrain, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. 
So what are you standing on? Other songs talk about all, all else is sinking sand, <laughs> right? I want to stand on the rock. Is there a scripture memory, a little passage you might want to commit to memory? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Um, it does what it does because it is what it is. It's his word to us. Any questions, any thoughts as we wrap up our time together tonight? What's grabbing your attention tonight as we've studied these things? Yeah. I'm just a little confused about uh, Martin Luther and I saw that little clip. Yeah. And why did the people move away from the Lutheran belief if that, I thought that was... That, that seemed to be the right way to go. And it, and it was because what the Catholic Church was suggesting was this, that to be right with God, we needed to participate in the atoning sacrifice with Christ to make things right with God. Whereas Luther made it very clear, no, it is by grace through faith we are saved, plus no works. No, we add nothing to uh, what God has already accomplished. And so the argument between the Catholics and the Lutherans, first of all, is an issue as to the efficacy or the, the effective nature of the atonement. In other words, what did Christ accomplish when he died on a cross? For the Catholic, he is the example of the suffering we need to continue to go through to complete atonement. For the Lutheran, the idea was, no, Christ did it all, once and for all. He did the complete work, right? So then went, went, what went wrong with the Lutherans? Well, again, because of what became known as state Lutheranism, in other words, if you were born as a Norwegian, then you were a Lutheran, whether you believed anything in the Bible or not. And you were, oops. In other words, there was no call to an evangelistic presentation of the gospel. It, was, it became, as I mentioned earlier, it became an ethnic claim. I'm Norwegian, I'm Lutheran. I'm Swedish, I'm Lutheran. I'm a Dane, I'm Lutheran. Or if you're, in this case, Dutch, you're Reformed. Okay? And because of when you have men who are in charge of such things and start putting sword to neck, you are Lutheran or else. And the oppression of Lutheranism now takes place. The tyranny, if you will, of Lutheranism. At which point, Norwegians, Swedes, Danes left such religious persecution to come to America to get away from it to be free. The evangelical, if you will, the gospel free church of America. Um, where 
we're going to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And you need to believe. And that is the essence of the gospel. Uh, over against this idea of a state religion. Okay, does that help? All right. no idea whether or not he had any theological training or to what degree he was in fact saved or not. Yep. Good question. Thank you. Early Scandinavians resist becoming an organized church? Oh, they really did. They, they wrestled with it because they, of the fear of potential tyranny. But that's why, if uh, in terms of the push, quite frankly, the EFCA is technically not a denomination. In their own language, they are not a denomination. They are an association of independent churches, they would say, which is how they've governed themselves historically. In other words, we are a bottom-up movement as opposed to a top-down movement in terms of church government. Yeah. Yes, it can. As many Baptist churches can affirm. <laughs> you know, the, the, the tyranny of the majority. Oops, that could be a problem. Uh, it depends on which group. The United Brethren uh, moved towards uh, an Arminian viewpoint, uh, whereas the Grace Brethren moved towards more of a, a Reformed Calvinistic viewpoint. Uh, the seminary I'm attending at uh, Grace Theological Seminary is a part of the Grace Brethren movement, um, where I'm working on my doctorate. Good questions. Any, anything else? Anything else that grabbed your attention or you had a concern? Yeah. Yeah, I understand the question. At the same time, there would be other major theologians that we could refer to who did hold to a six-day creation. So, right. So um, there have been people historically on either end of that stick. Um, so um, one of the questions I would get, and maybe this might be along the lines of your question, is do I take the Bible literally? 
And I have to qualify the question because I'm not sure what you mean by taking it literally. Uh, it depends on the genre that I'm encountering as to, to what degree I take it literally. You know, for example, if I'm looking at apocalyptic literature, um, I'm going to take it literally as apocalyptic literature <laughs> uh, and not historical narrative because it's not historical narrative, right? So with Genesis, it seems the bulk of Genesis would be historical narrative. Therefore, I am compelled to approach that text uh, with a, a literal unpacking of the creation account, whereas others might choose otherwise. Right. Well, Well, I th like I said, I, I would suggest that those there there have those kinds of discussions uh, dating even back to the early church over you know Gnostic issues with Christ uh, was it a spiritual resurrection? Was it a bodily resurrection? And things of that nature, uh, and even the person of Christ to to what degree he was uh, you know with the Ar was he was he a Arian, with the Arian heresy where he's not God at all or divine at all, and so. Um, whereas the early church is being very literal with, you know, some of the very strong passages that point to the deity of Christ uh, and, and, and not just in form, but in, in entirety. Uh, and so, so those kinds of conclusions would lead you to believe that, you know, for the bulk of what we have in terms of orthodoxy, there's a strong adherence to a literal rendering of text and, and meaning associated with that literal. Uh, because the minute you introduce uh, the other viewpoint, you're going to be all over the map with conclusions. And you're not, it's going to be very difficult to pin anybody down on anything that we would be able to claim is orthodox. Um, but it seems that the health and life of the church has has maintained uh, more steadfastness under some sort of orthodox claims as opposed to not um, historically. So that's that's you know in, in, in not answering your question directly. That's how I kind of go about framing the answer. So okay. One last question, or I'll just pray, which I could do that. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we unpack your word and we look at the truthfulness of it, um, we're not looking at some giant spiritual metaphoric thing here. We're looking for what's, in fact, actually true in terms of what you have said. And if you had wanted it some other way, you would certainly have told us that we should look at it some other way. But you've made it very clear over and over again in your word how we are to take your word, either by way of the metaphor or by way of the narrative or by way of the parable or the account and so, Lord, we thank you that uh, you've made it clear to us how we should take your word. 
and that there's enough in it from you to us for us to act on without our having to speculate otherwise. And Lord, may it be the case that we would rest in that, that we would trust you in that, that we would uh, wait on, on you with those things and find ourselves all the more dependent on you and what you have said And that we wouldn't be beguiled by our own reason or our own conceit or estimation. So Lord, we, we ask of your protection for us as we encounter your word and we ask for your enlightenment that you would show us what's true by what you've clearly put forward for us to believe. And that what you've put forward is completely and entirely sufficient for us. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. It is sufficient for us for life and salvation. So, Lord, we praise you for that. Because apart from your word, we are lost. We have no direction, nowhere to go, no hope no resurrection, most to be pitied, we would say. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for <laughs> revealing yourself to us through your precious words to us. Lord, help us to not just hear it, but to trust what you've said and to find ourselves obeying, running to your word, to obey. Lord, we desperately need your help to do that. We don't always do that very well. But God help us, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for attending us tonight, attending to us tonight, and thank you for your presence with us through your spirit, through faith in Christ, who've paid our debt once and for all. We give you all the praise. In your son's wonderful name, amen.